I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the court's recent opinions and denials, a scurrilous attack on Justice Clarence Thomas, and we'll interview Albert Lynn, the former Solicitor General of West Virginia. So what's happening at SCOTUS this week? Well, the justices are back. They're hearing oral arguments this week and issuing uh, a a few opinions and some Mm -hmm. orders. So there wasn't any action on a few cases we've been watching with interest, including Garco uh, Construction, which is a challenge to our or Seminole Rock deference. Uh, Also, no action on the DACA immigration case. But there were a few opinions and at least one noteworthy denial that, uh, that we wanted to mention. Yeah, so uh, one interesting opinion this week in class versus United States, the court held that uh, the defendant in this case did not waive his right to challenge the constitutionality of the statute under which he had pled guilty. So this guy, Mr. Class, was charged with possessing firearms that were locked in his Jeep that he parked on the U.S. Capitol grounds, which is such a dumb idea. There's (laughs) cops everywhere. Um, Anyways, he pled guilty and he waived his right to appeal certain claims, but he reserved the right to appeal some other claims, but nothing was said about his right to contest the statute um, was unconstitutional on appeal. So today the court said that um, a guilty plea on its own doesn't waive the very power of the state to prosecute him. So the court also decided Digital Realty Trust versus Summers. This is a case dealing with uh, whistleblowers who report violations of the securities laws. So this was uh, stemming from the Dodd-Frank Act of uh, 2010, I believe. Um, So there's an anti-retaliation provision, um, but it only covers whistleblowers who report uh, violations to the SEC. Now, there's an earlier law from 2002, Sarbanes-Oxley, which which would cover employees employees who report misconduct to the SEC, to Congress, as well as to internal supervisors. Um, so they would be you know, protected from retaliation. But the, the more recent law restricts it just to when, uh, when the whistleblowers have made these uh, allegations um, known to the SEC. So this was a case where Mr. Summers, Paul Summers, he claims that he was fired from Digital Realty Trust after he reported potential securities law violations to senior management at the firm. Um, but he never reported the violations to the SEC, so uh, he ends up getting fired. He files a whistleblower retaliation suit, and the company moved to dismiss his claims uh, because they said he was not a whistleblower under the meaning of Dodd-Frank. The lower courts agreed with Summers that he was a whistleblower, uh, but uh, this week the Supreme Court reversed, finding that Dodd-Frank's text and purpose leave no doubt about what the meaning of whistleblower is and and that it's restricted to people who uh, make these claims known to the SEC. So one interesting note about the the opinion today was there were these dueling concurrences. Um, So uh, the majority opinion makes reference to a Senate committee report and, you know, the purpose of the Dodd-Frank law. And Justice Thomas, joined by Alito and Gorsuch, concurred only in the judgment, so uh, for part of it. He says, to the extent that it relies on the text, but he declined to join the discussion of the statute's supposed purpose, primarily derived from this Senate report. So Justice Sotomayor um, had her own dueling concurrence, joined by Justice Breyer, arguing that committee reports are particularly reliable sources that we can look to, uh, that the justices can look to, to ensure that that they're being faithful to uh, what Congress intended 
when they are engaged in statutory interpretation. So I thought those were uh, kind of an interesting exchange in the concurrences there in the digital realty uh, opinions. Yes, and I guess um, Thomas was kind of paying, paying, taking over the Scalia role yeah. <laughs> um, to call out the use of uh, legislative history. That's great. Um, so earlier this week, the court also decided a dispute between Montana and Wyoming. Um, Montana claimed that Wyoming violated an old agreement between them, the Yellowstone River Compact, when it used more than its share of water um, from the Tongue River. Is that how you say I it? I think that is. I yeah. don't know. Um, the that's water at the war is state line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the court had appointed a special master in this case, and he issued a report. And based on that report, the court entered a judgment for Montana and awarded them um, just a little over $20,000. Um, and then about $67,000 in costs. So from the orders list this week, there were no new grants, but there was one uh, denial that I think we'll talk about briefly. So the court denied cert in Sylvester versus Becerra. This is a Second Amendment challenge to California's 10-day waiting period uh, for buying firearms. So this means you can buy a gun, but then you have to wait 10 days before the seller can actually give it to you. So Justice Thomas dissented from the denial of cert here, writing that although the Ninth Circuit purported to apply intermediate scrutiny to uphold the waiting period, its, quote, deferential analysis was indistinguishable from rational basis review. So he he wrote that if a lower court treated another right so cavalierly, I have little doubt that this court would intervene. Uh, but as evidenced by our continued inaction in this area, the Second Amendment is clearly a disfavored right in this court. So he points out that uh, in um, eight years, the court has not heard a Second Amendment case. And uh, and then he says, but in this term alone, just this, this current term, they've granted review in at least five cases involving the First Amendment and four cases involving the Fourth Amendment. And he says, even though our jurisprudence is much more developed for those rights. Uh, he says, I suspect that four members of this court would vote to review a 10-day waiting period for abortions or a 10-day waiting period on the publication of racist speech or even a 10-minute delay of a, stop, a traffic stop. Uh, so he conclude, concluded saying that the court would take these cases because abortion speech and the Fourth Amendment are three of its favored rights. The right to keep and bear arms is apparently a constitutional orphan, and the lower courts seem to have gotten that message. Yeah, the court really uh, doesn't seem to want to take up a Second Amendment case. They've denied a whole slew of them in the last few years. Yeah, and the lower courts are kind of all over the place yeah. uh, and, and clearly could use some guidance. So. Um, Keep trying, <laughs> Second Amendment proponents. Yeah. Um, so there's an article that came out earlier this week making a case for impeaching Clarence Thomas. And we think that it is pure malarkey. Yes. Um, it's by the disgraced former editor of the New York Times, Jill Abramson. Um, she wrote a book about Justice Thomas's confirmation, which has been thoroughly rebutted by the very sources she cited. Um, and it seems like in this case, she's just trying to ride the Me Too wave and resuscitate long debunked allegations against Justice Thomas. Um, so by way of background, um, Although I would guess to venture that most listeners are familiar with what happened during Justice Thomas's confirmation hearing, um, his former colleague at the Department of Education and the EEOC, Anita Hill, alleged that he made sexually explicit comments to her and unwanted sexual advances. Um, Thomas uh, categorically denied all of those accusations, calling the whole process a high-tech lynching. So that was 27 years ago, uh, but that brings us to Jill Abrams' Uh, claim that she has, uh, Abramson's claim that she has new evidence. So in this article, first she rehashes the claims of a woman named Moira, uh, Moira Smith, 
um, who says that Thomas groped her at a dinner party in 1999. So this story broke in 2016, just days before the presidential election. Uh, and other party go- goers have debunked this tale. Uh, Carrie Severino, a friend of the podcast, um, had a post at NRO detailing uh Smith's connections to the Democratic Party and uh, with quotes from a number of people who were uh, who were at the party that night, including, I think, the the host, the host of the party. Um, So next, Abramson claims that a journalist named um, Nancy Montweiler, who covered the EEOC when Thomas was the chairman back in the late 1980s, uh, had been sexually harassed by Thomas, but refused to come forward because he was, uh, quote, a good source um, for her stories. So Abramson says that she heard these allegations from another woman, um, but that Montweiler had refused to comment on uh, on this story. But that didn't stop Jill Abramson from running with it anyway. So after the New York Magazine article ran uh, earlier this week, Montweiler sent a message to the magazine uh, saying that she knew Thomas in a professional capacity and that she had never experienced any type of inappropriate behavior or had conversations about inappropriate or non-professional subjects. Uh, so the final thing uh, in in the article, which is the real uh, crux of um, her case for impeaching Justice Thomas, is she claims that he lied under oath during his Senate hearing uh, when he denied ever having inappropriate conversations with women at work. So I would point out that this is in spite of the fact that there were 12 women whom he worked with that testified on his behalf, and they described Anita Hill's allegations as unbelievable, totally preposterous, and and said that Thomas was incapable of, of the abuses described by Hill. Uh, so, you know, she, she says that it's because of the lies he told repeatedly and under oath, saying uh, he had never talked to Hill about porn or to other women uh, about any sort of risque subject matter. She says, um, you know, that that these undermined Hill, but they isolated her and that it prevented other women from coming forward. So she says in the article, quote, my new reporting shows that there was at least one more who didn't come forward. Their Me Too voices were silenced. And the one more woman that she's referencing is this Nancy Montweiler, who didn't come forward because she says she has nothing, she had nothing to come forward about. So uh, what Jill Abramson calls lies, most people would call Justice Thomas's side of the story. Uh, but unfortunately, Abramson twisted the truth to fit her narrative about uh, Justice Thomas. And yeah, I think she really um, showed her hand by slipping into her very lengthy article, um, the real intention for resurrecting these tired, discredited allegations. So I'll read the, the quote. I think this is crux. She says, as a crucial voice on the Supreme Court, Thomas holds incredible power over women's rights, workplace, reproductive, and otherwise. His worldview, with its consistent objectification of women, is the one that's shaping the contours of what's possible for women in America today, more than that of just about any man alive, save for his fellow justices. So I think that really tells us what this is about. She doesn't like um, his worldview or his jurisprudence because he's conservative, um, and, you know, he doesn't fit into the stereotypes that she thinks, you know, a black man in America should fit into. Yeah. And, 
you know, getting back to the stereotypes, you know, um, he came of came of age in the heyday of the civil rights movement. You know, he he helped organize the Black Student Union at his college, and he even supported Malcolm X and the radical Black Panthers, uh, and spent much of his career before joining the bench steeped in civil rights issues. But as a judge, Thomas strives to advance the Constitution as it was written and originally understood, rather than any sort of race-based agenda. And and the left just doesn't doesn't seem to like this and 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 can't let go of it and this you know frequently inspires um, anger and name calling and questions about his his intellectual intellect and fitness for the job um, you know there there have been articles written about the fact that uh, you know he's quote disgracefully silent because he doesn't participate in uh, in in oral argument very much which he's repeatedly stated is because he thinks the advocate should be able to speak and there are too many questions asked. Yeah, and he's also pointed out that he thinks the the, the parties make their best br- uh, arguments in the briefs, and and he thinks that that's the best way to decide a case is on the briefs rather than, you know, uh, twenty or thirty minute, um, you know, increment arguments. Um, so. You know, Abramson's article concludes by highlighting a 2013 Supreme Court case that that dealt with it was a statutory interpretation case and it dealt with who qualifies as a supervisor for Title VII workplace uh, harassment claims. And she tries to transform this statutory interpretation case into something nefarious. And and she says Thomas, who almost never speaks from the bench, which is is true. Um, wrote his own concurrence, also relatively rare, which, which is not true. I would interject that um, SCOTUS blog does this great stat pack every term, looking at, uh, you know, analyzing all of the, the opinions and the, you know, how justices vote together and these sorts of things. And I, I just did a casual glance at the last few terms, and he's written more opinions, majority concurring and dissenting compi- uh, opinions tallied up each year um, than, uh, than, you know, several of his, his colleagues combined. Combined. Uh, so, you know, to say that he rarely um, writes writes concurring opinions is is just clearly she's not following the court. Uh, but anyway, she says that um, his con- concurrence where he he says that he's joining the opinion uh, because it provides the narrowest and most workable rule for when an employer may be held vicariously liable for an employee's harassment. She says that he clearly wanted to stick it in the eye of the Anita Hills of the world. And I would submit that what's clear about this is that Jill Abramson sees the Me Too moment as an opportunity, perhaps to resuscitate her career or uh, most certainly to, to humiliate an honest and, and decent man. And and so we think that the witch hunt against Clarence Thomas must stop. Elbert Lynn is a partner in Hutton and Williams and previously served as the Solicitor General of West Virginia. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Elbert. Thanks. Happy to be here. So you made a name for yourself suing the previous administration. Uh, your, your state was up there with Texas, Michigan, and a few other states leading the charge against an overreaching federal government. So tell us about some of your victories for federalism. Sure. Uh, probably the biggest one that if anyone would know about is the Clean Power Plan Challenge, and that was the um, EPA's rule uh, trying to set regulations on the amount of carbon dioxide emissions from existing fossil fuel-fired power plants. And uh, we led a group of 27 states, uh, and together with industry and uh, labor unions and other interested parties. And probably the most exciting part about that case was getting a stay of the rule from the U.S. Supreme Court, which was, as I understand it, the first time and to date the only time that the Supreme Court has stayed uh, an existing rule while it is still being reviewed in the lower courts. 
Another big one that we had was the Waters of the United States case, and that's about the what constitutes federal waters for purposes of federal uh, jurisdiction. And uh, we were part of a coalition of 31 states and part of the sort of lead contingent of states there. And again, it was very rewarding, got a stay of that rule nationwide from the Sixth Circuit. Um, so you recently left the West Virginia SG shop for big law. Tell us about why you decided to make the switch and the biggest differences between the jobs. Sure. There are probably two reasons for the switch. The first is that it just sort of felt like it was the right time to pass the baton to somebody else. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd been at it for four and a half years. We'd been in the trenches against the Obama administration. And, <laughs> you know, it was sort of a good stopping point. There was a, you know, a new administration to come in. So our cases were sort of petering off. And it, it felt like a good time to, to bring someone else in. And the second reason was personal, which was, we have three kids there. Uh, at the time when I left, they were seven, six, and um, almost two. And it was just sort of a good time to make a decision about where did we want to be long term. You know, we loved West Virginia, but if we were going to think about going somewhere else, which we ended up deciding to do, uh, it was it was the time to make to make that break. In terms of what the biggest difference is, you know, when you work for the state the issues just sort of roll in the door every day. You don't have to go out and, you know, convince someone to give you some work. Um, Hutton has been a great place to be. And we're, you know, expanding on and building on the appellate practice that's there. And, you know, business development is far more of an art than a science. So uh, I've, I've been having to learn how to do that. So you've argued before the West Virginia Supreme Court, and you recently wrote a handy guide to the court for practitioners, uh, which we'll tweet out from the SCOTUS 101 account because it was it was really good. I liked it. Thanks. Um, and you've also d- appeared before federal appeals courts, uh, the D.C. Circuit, the Fourth Circuit. So tell us about some of the differences between uh, the two the two kinds of courts. Sure. I, I mean, in general, I, th- I have found that every court of appeals has its own personality. Um, you know, the Fourth Circuit is well known for its collegiality. The ju- judges will come down from the bench after every argument. And shake hands with the advocates. So, it's a great tradition. Yeah, I yeah. mean, not even not even at the end of a, a particular session, but after every single argument, they'll come down, they'll sort of conga line through, <laughs> shake hands, and go back up. And I even argued a, an en banc case there, and I can't remember how many there were, 15 judges, and they all came down from the bench, and you know, everyone shook your hand. And it's a <laughs> it's a great thing because I think it breaks down some of the barriers between you know the bench and the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the big differences between the West Virginia Supreme Court and Courts of Appeals, obviously, is that there's five of them uh, and there are three in the Courts of Appeals. So you have to sort of figure out how you're going to deal with five judges. It's a little bit difficult for me to answer this question in a way that's not particular to me because uh, one of the great privileges of being the state solicitor is that you really end up with what you can consider your home court. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, I was in the West Virginia Supreme Court more than a dozen times and just I felt very comfortable there. It was I mean, I don't want to say it was like arguing in my living room, but, <laughs> you know, you, you get up there and they know you and you know them. And if you've done a good job and, you know, maintaining your credibility, um, it's a very comfortable uh, experience. And, and, and you feel like I went back there recently to argue my first case since joining the private sector and it felt like going home. That's sweet. That's great. I, I read on Twitter, um, someone called you a goat 
um, <laughs> you know, arguing before the, the West Virginia Supreme Court. And I, I admit that I had to Google that to see what it meant. Uh, apparently, it means greatest of all time. Right, and um, not the animal. <laughs> and yeah, not the animal. Not the animal. <laughs> but I thought that was great. Um, you clerked for conservative firebrand Judge Bill Pryor, who Elizabeth and I both love, on the 11th Circuit. Um, can you tell us about uh, him and what it was like to work for him? Yeah, he was amazing. He was the so he was the first um, judge who I felt like was a real mentor to me. I had clerked previously for uh, Senior Judge Keaton in Boston, but Senior Judge Keaton was in his eighties, and when I clerked for Judge Pryor, he was in his forties, and he was, you know, in some ways like a like a father figure, in some ways like an mm-hmm. older brother. I mean, we were in that sort of strange you know, in between in terms of age, but, um, he's a role model, you know, and, and what I both professionally and personally, I mean, he's a stickler for good writing. He's really, really principled, um, for anyone who knows anything about Bill Pryor, you know, he, he prosecuted Roy Moore, Mm -hmm. um, for the, having the 10 commandments, uh, in the courthouse. And, you know, he felt like it was the right thing to do and, you know, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't back down from that. Um, and then personally, I mean, he's a he's a great father and a great husband, and we got to see that every day. And you could, you know, he, he was someone who you can look to and say, "I can, I can do this. I can do, you know, all of these things. I can both be a good lawyer, be committed to what I, you know, both to the craft and to the cause, but you know, also be, be a good family man." So you also clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. So tell us a little bit about working for him, and what's your favorite memory of your time in his chambers? <laughs> um, Justice Thomas is, uh, and you guys have probably heard this before. I mean, I think he's the person whose private persona is most different from the public perception of him. I mean, he is the most gregarious, you know, funny, loving, warm man I have, I have ever met. I think, especially someone who's in the public sector. Probably the favorite memory is is just in general the category of just talking to him about life and. Mm-hmm. You know, he he would just come in um, and and just start talking to you. And, you know, on whatever day it was, it changes through the year where you have pool memos due for the cert petitions. Inevitably. So they're due at I can't remember what time it is, 10, 11 o'clock and uh, a.m. And so what happens is you, you know, probably haven't finished them yet, especially later in the year when you've got opinions and things to work on. And inevitably, the justice will come, you know, ambling into the clerk's area and just start talking to you. And you're sort of frantically trying to surreptitiously type while talking to him. Um, but he's just he cares so much about his clerks. And, you know, there, there are moments there when you just tell yourself, you know, I want to remember this. I mean, when am I going to have a chance to just sit down and talk about barbecue with the Supreme Court justice. <laughs> you recently wrote in the Yale Law Journal that Justice Thomas has been the most originalist and arguably the most original thinker on the Supreme Court. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah. Um, so what I was really thinking about there is, uh, you know, Justice Scalia, who's obviously, well, you know, one of the founding fathers of modern day originalism, you know, often in a off-repeated quote referred to himself as a faint-hearted originalist. And, uh, and he would say, uh, you know, that Clarence is crazy. I mean, he, (laughs) and and that, that to me, I mean, sort of epitomizes what Justice Thomas is about. He's the most principled uh, jurist, certainly, and perhaps person that I've met. And he, 
he believes uh, in original meaning originalism, and he will apply it, you know, faithfully, no matter where that goes. And that has led him to some extremely sort of original thinking, right? I mean, he was the first one to try to give some meaning to the Privileges or Immunities Clause. He, um, you know, has his own view of what the Establishment Clause means, that it only, you know, only applies to states. You know, he he has uh, the view that students and, you know, some children sort of have limited First Amendment rights. Uh, these are all sort of single justice opinions. And so in that way, I think he's extremely original. So one final question, something we ask all of our guests here at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Hmm. Probably Byron White. Uh, Ooh, we haven't heard this one before. Yeah, and just about his life, you know? I mean, what is it like to be a Rhodes Scholar and play in the NFL and, (laughs) you know, and then end up on the Supreme Court. I mean, it's, it's such a unique path. Yeah. And I just, you know, would just love to sort of talk about his experiences. His nickname was Wizard, right? Wizard. Yeah. yeah. I think that was a trivia question at some point (laughs) in the past. Uh, Well, that's a unique answer, one we haven't heard. So uh, (laughs) thanks for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia where I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth. Okay. Are you ready? About as ready as I'll ever be. Okay. Um, who is the only justice to ever appear on U.S. currency? On currency? <laughs> oh. It is on a bill that is out of print now. I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna say Taft because he no. was president. That's a, that's a good guess. But it was Salmon P. Chase. And oh, his, I did know that. His likeness appeared on the $10,000 bill. Oh, I um, I didn't know it was the $10,000 bill, but I I have heard that. Man, I should have gotten that one. It's okay. Um, number two. Who was the first president-elect and vice president-elect to visit the court, at least in its current building now? And I think it's later than you would, you would think. President-elect to visit in its current building. So it has to be after... The mid 1930s, so I'm going to say it's much past. It's, it's later the 30s. than it's later than FDR. I'm going to go with uh, president elect. I'm going to go with Ronald Reagan. It is. Woo-hoo! It's Ronald Reagan and George Bush. Um, they visited the court on November 11th, 1980, because he understood the importance of the judiciary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Next question: Who is the first female justice to administer the oath of office in a presidential inauguration? The first female justice to administer. Yes, and I didn't say to the president, but to, in a presidential inauguration. Wait, who else has the oath of office? The vice president. Well, yeah. Okay, so. She, she administered the oath to the vice president. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with. I feel like O'Connor would be too easy. I'm going to go with Ginsburg. No, you were right. It, it was, was O'Connor. O'Connor. Man. Yes, she administered the oath of office to Vice President Dan Quayle in <laughs> uh, in January of 1989. Man, okay. I'm striking out. Yeah, the next one's kind of tough. Uh-oh. How many foreign-born justices have served on the court? And bonus points if you can name one of them. How many? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Uh, I mean, a, 
I'm, I'm, I'm guessing a few of the original six must have been foreign-born. So let's say three. Uh, close. There have been five. Five. So there's James Wilson from Scotland, James Iredell from England, David uh-huh. Brewer from Asia Minor, uh, George Sutherland from England, and Felix Frankfurter from Austria. David Brewer? When, yeah. When was he? I don't know. I'm going to have to look that up. Written down. Yeah. I feel like that's not <laughs> Justice Brewer. That's not one I'm familiar with. Anyway. Um, yes. Yeah, so last question. Who is the only president to serve a full term in office without appointing a single justice? A full term. Yes. Meaning his four full years. An entire presidency. Yes. Jimmy Carter. Yes. Correct. <laughs> well, good job. Yeah. He left plenty, plenty for... Uh, President Reagan to do uh, on the lower courts, especially. Although there still is that Carter yeah, judge, a Carter on, the judge in, on the Ninth Circuit. On the Ninth Circuit, so <laughs> he's been there. Forever. Shows how how long the judges uh, last, well beyond a president's uh, eight years, four to eight years. Yeah. So. Well, I think you did a pretty good job, and now everyone has some great um, trivia questions, you know, for their next for their next, their next cocktail social party. Event. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I I did what I could. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. You can also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 or email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.